0: So today's the last day in First Corinthians. My heart's kind of sad, actually. It's 26 weeks. It's like, wow, we've been through a lot together. And uh, um, it's kind of fun. I, I, I enjoyed one comment uh, told to uh, an unknown individual. I'm so glad your dad can be led by the Holy Spirit to be wrong. Um, They tell me, I don't know the name, I never will ask, they tell me in the uh, bookkeeping department that I had one person who said, yep, can't support this pastor, took his offering back. (laughs) So if you're here today, God bless you, I hope that money works well for you. I think what you discovered is that you were giving not to the Lord, but to something else, and so it's been fun, but to be honest with you, um, it's been uh, just a blast, and I, I... Cannot tell you how much of a privilege it is to preach to people who take seriously God's word and uh, struggle with it, even if at times it corrects long-held views. And uh, it's it's been so much fun. I've personally been taken, again, by the balance and the kindness of God to put together things that we often don't uh, hold together. And that is, he's a God of great mercy and of discipline. of of forbearance and long-suffering but bluntness Uh, he tells these people they're saints and he also tells them because of some of you the way you're approaching uh, communion you're dying in other words God is disciplining you to the point of death that's pretty blunt and uh, I, I don't find that to be common today. We don't need to be brutal with it. But man, it, there's this beautiful balance. And Paul ends this whole text with some of that same clarity. What he wants to wrestle with as he's closing this uh, message is is calling them to a mature life. And that's what he's done all the way through. So beautifully, so kind in, in terms of just his his love for them and his vision for them and at the end this is one of my been one of my favorite verses for a long long time in first corinthians 16 uh, verse 13 the last verse that janice read uh, 13 and 14 be on your guard stand firm in the faith be men and he's writing to the whole church so it would be men and women of courage i want you to be strong and i want you to do everything in love and, and there again is that incredible balance i want you to have courage i want you to stand up I, I want you to take on certain things that need to be taken on but but do it in a way that's loving doesn't do any good to fight for the right stuff if you're so toxic you're hard to be around uh, it doesn't do any good to waffle if you're just really kind you know, and, and, and so Paul's going to hold that balance together. And he finishes this text with kind of this calling to maturity in three critical areas of giving, of hospitality, and of filling in the gap. In other words, being a person of, who, who has a servant's heart. And in normal standing, Paul is pretty straightforward when he gets to this intentional generosity. If you're going to be a person who stands firm, who is on guard, who is a person of courage and strong, and you do it in love, then Paul says, you have to be a person of generosity. He starts off in this text. Now about the collection for God's people, that's the tithe. I want you to do what I told the Galatian church to do. In other words, Paul's not uh, I, I think you can tell as you go through this whole book, they didn't really like Paul. The Corinth church didn't like him. They much preferred Apollos. They would have rather had Apollos be their, their pastor. Timothy, heh, he's just, you know, as a kid. We, we don't really want him. They, they wanted Apollos. And and, and that's it's kind of that awkward thing at the end where Paul said, well, I already talked to Apollos about, but he really doesn't want to come see you. So... Um, but he's unapologetic in this calling. He's telling them, I'm not picking on you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad because I know that the, the relationship has been filled with tension. I am saying the same thing to you as I said to the Galatian church, as I said to the Ephesus church, as I said to Thessalonica. Every church, I say the same thing. And that is that you need to be people of Generosity. You need to be people of generosity, otherwise you seal off the blessing of God. And the, the thing that impresses me about Paul is he's not manipulative about it, he's just straightforward. I think giving in the church has been given a bad name. I, I think my early years in ministry, about 38, 40 years ago, I was wrongly influenced by the world. What I meant by the, or what I mean by that is uh, people would say, oh, you pastor, you churches are always talking about money. And so I was like, oh, okay, we're not going to talk about money at all. And I didn't for years. Probably the first four or five years of my ministry, I, I, I didn't preach on giving. I didn't preach on generosity. I didn't preach on that. Because after all, they out there in the world said, yeah, it's all you ever talk about. So I wanted like, no. And I came to grips with the fact that that's really a dangerous decision to make. To withhold from the congregation this exhortation of generosity. There's all kinds of abuses out there. We all know about them. We know about the people who say, you know, plant a seed, plant this seed of faith, And God will grow it and you're going to get this warm feeling. This individual said, you will get this warm feeling that will go up your leg and into your spine when you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit as you plant your seed of faith. One day, honestly, I had that feeling. I did. That warm feeling came up the back and it went right into my spine, and it was like, whoa. I went to the doctor and he goes, That's not the Holy Spirit. That's a sciatic nerve, sir. <laughs> okay. Ah, oh, the, the abuses of that have been horrible. It has. In many ways, what you see on TV, not all of them, but what you see on a number of them, is just gross manipulation. It is. Trying to buoy their ministry through manipulating your money and promising things that they never call back. I I don't think any of them said ever, hey, if you give money and you don't get this warm feeling and you don't get this plant, this seed of faith, uh, we'll give you your money back. No, none of them ever offer that. That's not Paul. He simply tells them. Now about God's collection or about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatians churches to do. And what is that? Number one, he says, I want it to be regular. I, I, he, Paul is linking something that we don't often do. And, and, and I think we need to. We often collect, you know, money for mission trips. Yay. Hallelujah. We collect them for advancing the kingdom. Yes. For running the church. Yes. For advancing the gospel in this region. Often we don't put giving and worship together. It was Paul who said, present your bodies a living sacrifice, present your life a living sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It makes sense that Paul does that because he says on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. In other words, I are like, well, Paul's coming. We got to get the money together. Nope. Every week he says, I want you to be a regular giver. I want you to be a regular worshiper. Now, none of us in this room would ever say, you know what? I think I'm going to give once every six months. I think I'm going to worship every six months. Whether I need it or not, I think I'll worship about every six months. We wouldn't think that. We, we regularly worship. I think some of you have it in your daily plan to worship God, to get up in the morning and to thank him for the day and to attribute the glory of, of everything that God does for you. That's all Paul is saying he says, let's put those two together. Because your generosity comes out of a heart that has been moved by God and changed by God. Paul cannot... Fathom a person that is not a regular giver. And then the next line, he says, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. And he fully expects that giving should be universal. Now, I don't look at who gives what. You ask me, Pastor, do you know what anyone gives? I don't have a clue. I will tell you there is a time when a person's going to serve as a deacon, when a person's going to serve on our stewardship fiscal, when a person's going to serve at that level, I simply ask our bookkeeper, is this a person a regular giver? And if they're not, they're taken off the slot. No questions asked, they're done. I'm not saying they're done as a Christian. I'm just saying there's no way I can serve on a staff or at a deacon board with a person who does not have the area of finance in a God-ordained priority. I can't do that to you as a church that's the only thing that we ever ask so when I say this I I don't have any names in mind but I guarantee you there's some in this room that have you have excused yourself and said well you know what I'm on a fixed income this is a difficult time I'm in college I'm paying just like a friend of mine I went to seminary with we were talking about tithing one day and um, he told me he said well I don't tithe to my church I said you what? You're going to school to become a pastor and you don't tithe. How how come? And he goes, well, I I pay money for my tuition. And, And I said, well, man, so your tuition is your tithes and I bet your offerings are the books you're buying. And I said, where does that stuff stop? Because, I mean, I have to pay gas to go to seminary, so that's got to be in my tithe too. And I have to eat to live, so that's got to be in my tithe. I mean, where does this kind of life, and it didn't shock me one iota that within five years of graduation, he was out of the ministry. To be honest with you, he was out of the ministry before he ever stepped into the seminary. Why? Because he had a way of always excusing himself from being obedient to the text of scripture. Some of you have written yourself off. You've said, you know, I don't have to give. I I don't make enough money. God will make it up. There's a lot of people in our church that got a ton of money and they're going to give and they'll take care of it. Paul didn't say. Each one of you, who has the ability to? Each one of you that are not on a fixed income. Each one of you that aren't going to seminary. Each one of you that aren't going to Corbin. Each one of you, he doesn't put any asterisks in there. If you have income that comes in, God says, I want a portion of that. Why? Because it is simply the recognition that all that I have is given by God. And if I start shielding myself and putting up a wall, then it's at that moment that I say, hey, you know what, God, in the area of finance, I got this. Don't worry about it. You you go take care of China. I got this. And Whenever that happens... When I was in Africa one time, we had a group of pastors come together and they had a number of subjects that they wanted us to teach on. And, and one of them, they said, would you teach on tithing? And I was like, are you kidding me? This rich guy from America coming to Africa teaching on tithing? I passed on it. I was like, I, I don't think I would be good at it. And I, I wasn't, not compared to the lady who preached. This gal, she was from, I think, Venezuela, and she she shared, and um, she was amazing. She called them to a faithfulness of giving. These are all pastors. And I remember very vividly, she said, if you have 10 tomatoes, you give one of them to the Lord. You don't hold on to all 10. You have something to give. And then she went down and in the area, they did a lot of cashews. And she, she just went. And I thought when it was all done, I thought, man, this, this woman preached the word of God in a way I don't think I'd have the guts." Because she called every person there to a universal sacrifice. Not the same sacrifice, Paul says, in keeping with his or her income. It's universal. I'm unapologetic for that. Why? Because if I don't speak truthfully the word of God, I let some of you go out of here thinking... I don't need to be obedient in that area and God will be okay. I'll hold on to what I have. Paul goes on and he goes, not only is it universal, but it's purposeful. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. See, there was a purpose for this. It was not to pad Paul's pocket. They had a mission. They had a strategic outpost there through Jerusalem and they were reaching multiple trying to fulfill that Acts 1-8 model you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth and so they were driving that vision out of Jerusalem and Paul says I want you to send it in so that we can be a part of the vision that Christ has given to us your giving should be that purposeful it should be thought through Where do we want to invest? Carrie and I have a commitment that 10% goes to our church. And then after that, we consider other ministries that we love. Carrie likes iTech. She's utterly taken by their mission work around the world. I have a fondness for village missions. They send pastors to places most people don't even want to live. And we have others, Corbin, and a variety of others, but that's after. That's after we commit our first and foremost to this church that God's called us to be a part of. There's purpose, there's vision, and Paul says, lastly, there's accountability. He tells him, if it seems advisable for me to go also, I'll go. They will accompany me. Why would he do that? Because he wants to be held accountable. You should always expect that of any organization that you send money to, including your church. There's some organizations you'll send money to and they'll take 5% out for admin costs. There's others I've seen as high as 40%. So 40 cents of every dollar that you give is not going to what they recruit the money for, but the admin. It's amazing how some organizations can run on 5 to 10% and others need 40%. You You should never ever... Worry or ever feel like you're an intrusion if you ask for the PNL statement of our church. Where's the money go? How much do we spend on missions? Fifteen percent, approximately, is our goal. How much else comes through the church that goes to missions? That's probably another fifteen percent that we help oversee. That the global mission team that oversees that's going to be somewhere in the vicinity of close to a half million dollars you you should be able to say where, where do we invest in in our missions and by the way uh, i'm not trying to drive the train but what's the philosophy and they have one and it's glorious paul has given us permission he he's not saying hey when you give your money you don't get to ask any questions no if, you, if the church wants me to come, I will accompany them. I will give an answer for it. I will keep you up to speed because we're going to live with an open heart and an open book. And you should expect that of any organization that you give to. Most notably, I can only speak for our church. You're called to intentional generosity, but it's not a blind generosity. It's not a trust us. Yes, you have to trust leadership. But it's trust if you will and verify. You should be able to expect that of any organization. Secondly, Paul says, I want to call you to an intentional hospitality, not just a generosity. The term is not used in this text, it's just the lifestyle is. I find this to be almost the funniest section in the Bible because, again, this church really didn't like Paul, they didn't want him to come. They really never invited him. They kind of wanted him to solve some problems, but the fact is, they liked Apollos. And so, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you and I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter. (laughs) That's going to be four months. Can you imagine going to a place that they don't want you to come and they don't even like you? I'm not talking about your mother-in-law. I'm talking about in ministry. And all of a sudden, Paul's going to say, hey, I'm coming. And by the way, I'm going to stay with you for four months. And this little awkward relationship that we have, it's going to get really awkward after four months. But I'm going to plant myself right there in the middle of your church. And you're going to take care of me. I mean, Paul, you've lost your mind except for the fact that what he challenges them to do is, my friends, I want you to live with an open heart. I want you to receive not just me. I want you to receive Timothy. And when he comes, I want you to receive Apollos. I want you to be the kind of church that lives with an open heart. You're ready to receive people, not with a defensive. In fact, he even goes far, so far as to say, hey, don't intimidate and create fear in Timothy's heart. Now, I want you to live with an open heart. I began to wrestle with that. What would that look like? What does it look like to live with an open heart, receptive? Maybe it's that person who says, you know, God has really blessed us. And you call up Capital Christian and you say, hey, um, if there's a family that's struggling a little bit and they really still want to keep their kid there, how about if you send the bill to me for the next three months? You don't need to tell them the name. They don't need to know who I am. They just need to know that there's a church here that loves them. Living with an open heart is taking generosity and moving into the relationship. It's not just welcoming a person into your home; it's welcoming a person into your heart. That's what Paul was saying. Is when when Timothy comes, receive him, welcome him, take him into your family. If you call the school and said, "Hey, I'd like to adopt some kids," uh, they don't need to know about it. God's just blessed us; we have some extra money. We'd like to take some pressure off some families. You're you're opening your heart to them. You're welcoming them into your sphere. And you know what? It's not against the Lord if they know your name, but it's also pretty cool if they think, wow, there's somebody who doesn't need any notoriety. They just, they loved us that much. Yeah. Living with an open heart, maybe it's, you know... You sit down and you just decide every Sunday when I sit down, I'm going to greet every person around me. I want to know their name and I want to discover something about them. And, and you know, last night uh, there was a new family. Um, honestly, I don't know how long they've been attending, but um, we just came up. And, and after like six, seven, eight minutes, it's like, wow, we started making all these different connections. It's like we're family. It's like wow, we know each other. We have, we have people that we know. It was such a delight. It's easy in this world. You can get relationally kind of overwhelmed. And Paul comes to them and tells this church, I know you don't like me all that much, but I'm coming. And I want to challenge you. Not because I want to make this relationship awkward, but because I want you to mature. And I want you to take a step. And I want you to not only live with an open heart, but I want you to live with a servant's heart. Look at verse 8. This is, this is amazing as well. Uh, I, I'm going to stay on here in Ephesus until Pentecost. Because a great door of effective work has opened to me. Stop right there for a moment. What do you expect next? A great door is open to me. I, I'd expect for him to say, and man, people are coming to Christ. A great door is opened to me. And I found favor. And people are giving. That's what I expected. I expected positive news. Paul this guy's amazing a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are all kinds of people who hate my guts really i mean for most of us we kind of come to grips with the fact that um an open door is an easy path blessing is we found favor An open door is, wow, it was an opportunity and all kinds of people came to Christ. For Paul, an open door, wow, I came and I had all kinds of people opposing me. In fact, the back of the sanctuary, the back third, they turned their heads and stood in opposition to me. Praise God, what an opportunity. It's crazy. He's challenging this church. Be careful that you don't get into the idea that blessing means ease of path. Sometimes it takes kind of some grit. Sometimes it takes a stiff chin. Sometimes it takes you have to lean into this thing and press into this thing. Don't make the assumption that an easy life is a blessed life. An open door means a clean pathway. Sometimes I want to call you to just simply what? Be a servant. Sometimes it's going to put you out. A number of years ago, a friend of mine called me. It was when we were in Denver. And he called me and said, hey, Mark, do you know anyone in Minneapolis? My son's coming in on a bus out of Canada. They couldn't get a flight. And he's coming into Minneapolis, into the bus station. It's not in a great part of town. And then he has to get from there to the airport. And I can't get there. Do you know anyone in Minneapolis? And I said, I do. I know a church there. Let me call. So I called the pastor. I said, Hey, we need some help. It's not a small church. I think at the time there about 6,000 people. And I said, Hey, um, Leith, is here. do you know of anyone? He goes, yeah, Mark, I got it covered. I'll keep you posted, but don't worry about it. We'll get this kid. Well, this guy calls me. And um, he wanted the dad's phone number. I said, who are you? He said, well, I'm a pilot. I went down and picked up Darren and I got him. He's at our house. My wife's feeding him. He wants to live with her for the rest of his life. (laughs) I'll be sure and tell his parents. Um, do you, do you think that they'll mind? And Well, I'll give you their phone number. Do you think they'll mind if I just kind of put them on a hop with me? I'm flying actually into Denver and I, I can just put him on the, the flight with me, take care of it, it save some money, and, and I'll have him home tomorrow. You, you have him at your house. You're going to take him to the airport. You're going to fly him with you. You're going to drop him off at the door to his parents. Who are you? He goes, man, this is is what every Christian should do. Huh. Not so sure we're all there yet. When he calls you to an intentional hospitality, he's saying, my friends, not only open your heart, but steal your heart. Live with a servant's heart. Sometimes God's going to say, I want to put you out. Sometimes I want you to bring somebody home. Sometimes I want you to drive out of your way. Sometimes God says, it's going to hurt. And if you're in it and you come to the wrong conclusion, then an opportunity for God must be an easy path. You're going to miss Growing up and maturing in your faith. Paul wants them to stand firm. He wants them to live with courage. So he says, I want you to commit yourself to an intentional hospitality. Finally, he says, I want to call you to a spiritual maturity. He summarizes it in this verse that I love. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong and do everything in love. And you can almost say, well, Paul, what does that look like? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I want to talk to you about three friends. Three friends who, maybe they exemplify this better than anyone I know. They're right here. Stephanus' household. Later he says, uh, Fortunatus and Achicus. These are three that I want to talk about, Paul says. And, and he brings out, and I think they're nothing more than illustrations of stand firm, be strong, be courageous, and do it in a loving manner. And let me give you an illustration of three guys. The, the first guy, what stands out to Paul is, is this guy's a harvester. When he came to Christ, and Paul says he was one of the first that ever came to Christ. They were the first converts in Achaiae. But they weren't the last converts. Why? Notice. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They were the first. And so how did the others come to them? They understood that when they received the gospel, the gospel didn't stop with them. They shared it. They, they weren't belligerent. They weren't mean-spirited. They weren't cramming Jesus down everyone's throat. But there were those moments where they took advantage of a situation and they shared the gospel. They passed the grace on. They helped the person discover and they committed themselves. They devoted themselves to what? The advancement of the gospel to the saints. that's what it means to be courageous that's what it means to stand firm I'm afraid for a lot of us we may die and if God allows this and I don't know if he will that there might be some of our friends that are headed to hell and if they had one last moment they might look over at us and say why did you never take the risk I know why I had a person not all that long ago. He he was mad at me for some, well, it was a known reason. It wasn't my issue, it was somebody else's. I, I was just the closest in this debate. And he was so mad, he just said, you can take your religion and send it to places I can't tell you about. He hated God. And he wanted no discussion of Jesus And probably a lot of us can have those kind of situations. And we're like, ooh, I'm not going to go there. I mean, if they drag the gospel out of me, I'll share them. If they tell me, how do I get saved? Oh, I can tell you that. If they pin you up against the wall, tell me about Jesus. If they say, oh, your life is an amazing testimony to kindness and grace. I want to be like you. How does that happen? We all like those But this guy, they devoted themselves. Stephanus's family became a part of the team of people. They were harvesters. Paul says, if you want to grow up, it's what you need to become. Lastly, in this call of spiritual maturity, he, he uses these three. In verse 17, he says, I was glad when Stephanus and uh, Fortunatus and... Achacus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. It's such a beautiful phrase. I'm not a drywaller. Smartest thing I do when I got a drywall issue is I call Steve Buchanan. Um, but I've seen enough. Have you ever seen that wall where you want to repaint it? And it's the wall where you have pictures of all your family. You got a ton of those pictures. And you take them all off and you look at your wall and you're like, Oh, good night, there's 10,000 landmines on this wall. Just, it chips out, you know, you're taking all the pictures out, and it's uglier than ever. And at that point, you you, you first try it, if you're a little bit maybe um, unfamiliar with spackling, and you take some paint, and you go, yep, that'll cover it. It dries, and then you have about 10,000 little dimples. And your theory is, well, if I just put more pictures up there, then no one will see it. But if you're smart, what you do is you take some spackle and you put it up there and you kind of smooth it out or you hire somebody to do this and they get up there and they smooth that all out. They're filling in all of those gaps. And then what happens is it has to dry for a couple of days and then they come back and they sand it and they put sand every portion of your home. You're going to find dust in closets that weren't open. It's just part of the process. And then, after they sand it, it has to sit there for a while, and then they come back and spackle it, and then after they spackle it, they have to come in and do some things. 30 days later, it's time to paint. That whole process is what Paul's talking about filling in the gap. What you do when you spackle, what you do, you got all these holes and all these cracks. And what you're doing is you're taking that spackle and you're, you're putting it in there and you're filling in the gaps. And Paul says, when these three men came to church, they didn't come with the intention of finding fault. They come with the intention of what? Filling in the gaps. That's what he says. I was glad when these three arrived because they have supplied what was lacking. They filled in the gaps from you, my friends. That's what he was telling the church. One of the sweetest lines in the whole Bible. For they refreshed my spirit. And by the way, yours also. See, so when you mature, you take on a certain privilege of responsibility. Yes, of generosity. Yes, of hospitality. But you also take on this commitment that my life has got the privilege of filling in the gap. That might be a work. That might be a church. It's that person. It's the spirit in you. That I'm here. To bridge the gap from what is to what can be. It's going to take investment. It's going to take giving. It's going to take hospitality. But Paul says at the end, such men deserve recognition. Why? Because in the midst of our beautiful and messy life, Paul says when you grow up, when you mature, your life is a life of filling in the gap. Through generosity, through hospitality, through sacrificial love. You fill in the gap. Every church I've ever been a part of has got messy people. If somebody tells you their church doesn't have messy people, they'll lie about a lot of things. They will, they'll lie their way out of a sack fact is churches have messy people and mature people don't look at that and go, oh dear God, we got a bunch of hypocrites here. No, it's like, wow, we have a bunch of projects. We have a bunch of opportunity. We have, if somebody will come with a heart to fill in the gap, we can make something significant and you'll be amazed at what can happen with just a little bit of your sacrifice steady over a long period of time. Pittsburgh Children's Hospital they were having a celebration of their large donors over the years, households that had donated 50 and 75 and hundred thousand dollars. If you've ever been in one of these children's hospitals, Carrie and I were in, uh, in Denver and, and OHSU Dornbecker up here is the same thing. They, they always have people. they don't survive just off of the bills, um, but they have donors that are amazing. and this Pittsburgh hospital. They gathered them all together. And at one moment, one of the individuals, one of the trustees of the hospital was reading some of the names of the significant donors over the years. And as he was reading through, many of the names were recognized. This family gave $75,000. This family gave $100,000. And then he looked at this name and, and he paused In fact, he gave the, the amount first. 200000 was given. And everyone knew this name. I mean, he'd worked at the hospital for 30 years. There wasn't a person in that room that didn't know the name Albert Lexi. What they were shocked at is how Albert Lexi, who buffed shoes for a living got on the list of largest donors to the hospital. It so shocked the guy who was reading it, he paused. Albert Lexi. And it was almost like he said, Albert Lexi? It's a shock enough that they went afterwards and said, how does a man who buffed shoes for 30 years at the front entry to the hospital give over 200,000 Albert smiled when I took this job he said I told the Lord there are going to be people who need this hospital that can't afford it and so Albert helped start and no one knew this the children's hospital free care fund he helped start that and my guess is, is when he went in with the suggestion, the president didn't say, oh, and you're going to be one of our largest funders. Nice idea, Albert. Thank you. What he didn't know is that Albert had made a commitment to be a generous giver. And he told the Lord, Lord, I'll give one third of everything I make at this hospital to you so that this hospital can serve families that can't afford it. It's amazing. It's amazing what God can do with a person who commits over a long period of time to just give generously, to have a heart that's open to families he doesn't even know, and to labor sacrificially. Imagine what God wants to do with us in this city, you and your family. If you will simply say today, God, I want to be that kind of mature person that gives generously, that lives with an open heart and serves even when it gets tough. When you make that commitment, you'll discover what Albert did. Over a 30-year period, a faithful giver can make a significant difference. Let's pray.